Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be a football analyst, storyteller, and explorer? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 114 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, June 20th, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday nights. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, loyal listeners of the show know that now we usually transition into a couple of segments before getting into the interview with that week's guest and closing out the show. Well, it's time to change things up. Oh, say change it up. Right. Change it up. We'll close out the show with a review of the movie Solo, a Star Wars story. But first, let's get down to business. This week's guest is Yogi Roth. He's a college football analyst for the Pac-12 Network, a filmmaker, author, explorer, and storyteller, just to name a few, and someone I covered years ago as the sports editor for the prestigious Wyoming County Press Examiner in Tunkhannock, Pennsylvania. Yogi also has northeastern Pennsylvania roots, specifically where his story got started around Dalton and Factoryville. He went from dreaming of playing in the NBA to winning a district championship and getting named All-State in high school football to walking on as a receiver at Pittsburgh and rooming with Larry Fitzgerald. We'll talk about that path, the huge transition then from player to a coach, leaving his whistle behind for a career in sports media, the importance of family, traveling the world, and some life lessons along the way. The adjective storyteller definitely fits Yogi Roth. And we'll have to have a two-parter down the road to further dive into his podcast, Life Without Limits, his documentary, Life in a Walk, and several other projects and passions aside from football. But this is a pretty good start. You can follow Yogi on Twitter. He's at Yogi Roth. That's Y-O-G-Y-R-O-T-H. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Yogi Roth. He is a Pac-12 Network college football analyst, a filmmaker, an author, an explorer, et cetera, et cetera. Yogi, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm awesome, man. It's great to be on it. I mean, I mean, it's fun to you know reconnect through different forms of digital media to hear what people are doing in life. And it's really funny how our worlds have collided randomly uh, once again. 
it has been fun to get to where we are. And we'll probably hit on that as we go along. For those that don't know, Yogi and I connected in northeastern Pennsylvania several years ago when he came to do a talk at the local high school, Tunkanic Area High School. A little shout out to them to just chat about his life. And I happen to be the sports reporter in the area covering such a story. And we've gone on from there. And speaking of living in northeastern Pennsylvania. Before we get into some of what you do, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit to that time period, back to your Dalton and Factoryville and Lackawanna Trail PA days. Where did you think you would be back then, as opposed to maybe where you are now? What was in store for you, at least how you viewed it when you were growing up? When I was growing up, I think it depended upon the time of year, you know, and the in the winter I was playing for the 76ers, you know, in the summer I was going to be, you know, playing for the Yankees or the Oakland A's like Ricky Henderson, or I was going to be in the U S open and be Pete Sampras. I mean, that, that was our town, you know, and, uh, you know, I think towns overall have changed and shifted, but for us, we believe that all of our dreams were boundless and endless and our potential was limitless. Um, and as an athlete and somebody whose life was built around like, the sports section of the Scranton Times and the Ambient Journal, like I literally was all about sport. So my vision was I was going to play forever. Um, I didn't realize that number one, that doesn't happen. And I didn't realize the, the avenues that sports allow you to quote unquote play forever. And, and that's what I'm doing now, which, which is an absolute gift. But I don't think I had like the, the dream job or the aspiration outside of play for the Sixers. And then it was, play major college football. And th- that's kind of where my world was. And I, I always kind of wonder if I didn't fall in love with the ball, you know, where would I have gone? You know, like would I have gone to college? I, I don't know, to be quite honest with you. Um, so I think each one of those experiences just opens up your eyes. You know, you, you play a game and you meet somebody from a different part of the country. You know, my roommate in college as a freshman was Antonio Bryant from the heart of Miami, you know, and, you know, a guy I met in college, family was from Haiti. You know, like there were just things that I wasn't exposed to. And that begets, okay, now I want to travel. What's that really look like? And then, oh, I want to write because that's how you connect with people. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, that little small little ball of yarn just starts to, you know, just grow and evolve and evolve as it, as it keeps moving. You've mentioned in speeches and just from us talking to each other, a close-knit group of friends growing up when you were in northeastern Pennsylvania and a support system in a sense. Not only your parents, not only your siblings, but those friends who would say, hey, if you want to play in the NBA, we're right behind you. Like, we'll help you out. We'll be part of your group if you make it. Take us with you if you get there. There was always people around you to give you that positive reinforcement until there started to become coaches or parents who who might look at kids' dreams and say, well, you'll never get there. You'll never make it to the NBA. You'll never make it to the NFL. You never play college football. You've walked on at the University of Pittsburgh for starters and ended up getting a scholarship on their football team. And there's been a lot of outside noise just in general in our lives where we hear people say, you can't do that, or you don't have enough talent to do that, and you'll never make it there. Has there been I'll show you type of mentality that you have growing up where you were able to make it to Pittsburgh, where you were able to live out whatever dream that you've thought you've had? I know dreaming and reaching your goals is a big mention of a lot of the things that you do. 
how were you able to go away from the outside noise when people told you you can't to then do what you wanted to do? Yeah, I love that question, man. Um, I really think that when I was younger, I used that all as motivation. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that that's a lot of wasted energy. You know, and, and I get it. I, I interviewed Baker Mayfield at the Heisman. I'm with the top quarterbacks in the country at Elite 11 every year. Um, and I get what motivates people that are told that it won't happen. I live that. My my coaches, literally, that I loved told me, maybe you should go play at a smaller school. You know, my family wasn't necessarily even, like, yeah, go go for it. It was kind of more of like, are you sure about it? Because, you know, you're, you know, they're pretty good out there. Um, but I always had this deep belief um, and I think as, a, as my career went forward in college, it went from I need to prove that I'm a scholarship player to I played in the second game of the season as a freshman. I knew I was a scholarship player. I didn't have a scholarship um, at the time, but, but I, I, that wasn't going to kind of define me. And as I've gotten older, I, I really realized that, that that chip on my shoulder of proving people wrong um, isn't healthy, wasn't healthy. Um, I wish I reframed it back in the day because I probably would have been a more uh, relaxed player. You know, I, I was, I was uptight, you know, like I was, it was very much of anal retentive and my, and my preparation skills now are still that way as a broadcaster. But I, I think that now I'm way more relaxed than I was then um, because it was about, you know, taking on the world and taking on these giants that and we know now as you become an adult that like it, no one really cares, number one, and it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, anything other than am I putting my best foot forward? Am I chasing a dream? And am I able to level set of the actualization of that? Um, and that's a really clear thought that I think gets performers to drop into a state of flow when you dive, when you dive into the psychology of it. I didn't have that. I think I was always in this fight because I was told no all the time. Um, so probably wasn't healthy, you know, in terms of how hard I was training with the mentality that I had when I was preparing for those opportunities. Uh, and, and that's something that I, that I wish I was exposed to at a younger age, but I think we probably all just need to go through it. You know, Baker Mayfield tweeting at Colin Coward is just a waste of energy. It might motivate him, but external motivation has been proven over thousands of years to eventually not motivate anymore because it's not at the heart of, you know, the, the craft. So I, I, that's something that uh, I love talking about because I, I was screwed up and jacked up regarding what drove me to a certain degree. Once it got past the initial goal of I can play on the highest level, because that was the purest thought that would eventually become convoluted with all the other business and garbage that, you know, is other people's opinions. Is the biggest regret from Pitt not beating Notre Dame? <laughs> yeah, it might be. <laughs> um, <laughs> God, I hated them. I mean, it was like such a deep thing for me because that was one where I mean, I, I brought it up to Urban Meyer two, three summers ago. I was at Ohio State and I'm in his office and talking travel and life. And I said, hey, man, you remember Ronnie Rodimer? He goes, yeah, I remember Ronnie. And I said, you know, you, you don't remember me that day, but um, I was next to him on every drill. And you guys kept putting, it in, putting him in front of me. And they had one scholarship for two wide receivers and ended up giving it to him. And I get it now being in the business. He was 6'5", 230, jumped out of the gym, looked beautiful, looked like Randy Moss. Um, and here I am at 5'11", maybe, and just a scrappy kid. And, uh, but when they chose him, I mean, that, that, that was my career. 
You know, like I made the decision that day, we've talked about it, of I'm going to go to whoever plays Notre Dame the most. That's where I'm going to go play. And uh, they didn't care, right? Again, an external influence. Um, they didn't even think about it after I left the camp that day, probably. You know, nobody was tracking, did they miss on Yogi Roth as a recruit? Uh, but I did. And, and it, it sticks with me to this day. Like One is like a funny story and a funny joke. Uh, but also as a broadcaster and as a storyteller who is seeking and uncovering humanity and sports all over the globe and on Saturdays in the fall uh, on the Pac-12 networks for a couple hours each weekend to remember that words matter, you know, whether I'm calling a game and I got a chance to light up a kid because he dropped a pass or I can coach the viewer around why he dropped it. And, and I'm very aware of that. And I don't think that happens if it wasn't for the, you know, I guess the, the, the words uh, that were told to me by people that didn't believe in me. I know we're in a clickbait-esque type of society when it comes to podcasts, when it comes to social media. Do you have any good stories about Larry Fitzgerald? Not to give away your age to everyone, but he did attend Pitt, and you might have happened to be there as well. Oh, yeah, I got countless stories of Larry. Um, you know, we, we roomed together for his two years, uh, for every game. And a lot of that was because I was, you know, the guy who kind of knew every position and he was the freak talent that, you know, was trying to learn the playbook. Um, I think uh, out of all my stories about Larry, I'm trying to think of a, of a really good one or juicy one. Um, he seems I don't know. like I mean, the type of player that doesn't have many of those still. Well, I mean, he was the best trash talker on the team, you know, and people in the NFL say that too. You know, he was the guy like Shante Spencer was a like, 10 year pro at corner and they would battle. And Shante was my year. Um, so we, we all Larry left after his second year. So basically we we're all the same year, um, or at least got two years together. And the amount of smack that Larry would talk was just awesome because he would frustrate guys. And the thing with him that he learned is he was able to disassociate from the frustration. Right. So he would moss somebody and he would, you know, throw the ball at him and have fun with them and start laughing and talk smack and get in their head and let them know that he was in their head. Um, but if the opposite happened and he got stoned at the line of scrimmage, he can move on to the next snap. You know, I, I'd have to say though, the, the thing that sticks out to me most, or, I mean, there's so many off the field moments with him. Uh, Cause we went through a lot, right? I mean, he lost his mom when he was in college with us. We lost a teammate when we were in college. Um, just, just some tough stuff that went down, but I'll remember we were playing Texas A&M his freshman year at Heinz Field, and he's not starting. And I'm getting a lot of playing time, and we're kind of figuring out our receiver thing. It's a close game. We ended up missing a field goal based on, like, a horrific rule in college football um, that doesn't exist anymore, thank God. But regardless of that, uh, I'll never forget being on the sideline and Larry uh, going up to Walt Harris after we don't convert a third down and goal on a fade and goes, I'll make the play. And Walt kind of just looks at him and looks away and he goes, coach, I'll make the play. Put me in. And Walt, I'll never forget it. He goes, you're right. You will get in there. And we threw him a fade for a touchdown the next snap. And, uh, and that was impressive to me because that type of belief you have in yourself. I mean, think about it, your job or our profession. How many times we tell our boss like passionately, like, give me the mic, right? Or give me the game or give me the show to produce or give me whatever. Like, I'll make it happen. And it's not about who I want to be, but it's about what I want to do. 
And I, I think of that and, and my mind's going back to like 2003 right now or 2002. Um, and it's, and it's of Larry being like, okay, it's do versus be, what do I want to do? I want it to, to get us to a place where we can win. Who do I want to be the number one draft pick, but nobody cares about that. So put that to the side and help this team get done what they've set out to do. And that, that little sidebar on the sideline, I can remember watching it being like, this guy's going to be a star. And that was kind of the jumping off point for him. He's done well for himself since then. We can say yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> So everyone has a decision to make after graduating, of course, and you go on to get a master's degree in communication management and then go on into the coaching ranks and not only end up in coaching, but end up on one of the most prolific college teams in that time period in the sport at USC as an assistant quarterbacks coach for Pete Carroll. How does that transition take place for you going from an athlete to then going into the coaching rankings, very young, and also on a team that happens to be one of the best in the program's history? Um, it's, it's miserable, to be honest with you. Um, it, it's like if you ever asked a high school or a college freshman, uh, what would you, how, how would you play if you went back to high school football right now? And they'd be like, man. And, and they couldn't even, they don't even need to be playing college football. Um, but if they were, it, it'd be 10x. But we'd all say, oh, my God, I would kill it. Um, you go in, into college coaching a year out of playing and I'm around the best program at the time. And I think Pete is one of the best coaches in the history of college football, um, let alone all of football. And you start to get exposed to that type of greatness. And, and that's amazing. And then you go on the practice field and you're like, okay, the elite are, are elite, but they weren't better than Larry. And the fourth receiver, I didn't think it was better than me. So you wish you could go back and play again because you're like, oh, my God, I'm around this elite coach who now I'm, I'm, I'm allowed inside the curtain. Even within the first month, I remember uh, I wanted to go play again. And I started trying out uh, and I was working out for arena football uh, teams because I was like, I got to go back. Like, I'm not done you know, because you, you start to learn the game so much. So I think that early on, that part is really hard. And I remember calling a colleague of yours, a guy named Pat Kerwin who's one of coach Carroll's really good friends. And I said, Pat, like I miss playing so much. Like I'm miserable. And he goes, yeah, that's going to happen, but it'll fade away. Like just matter of fact. And I was like, what? No, it won't. Like I'll always want to play. And he was right. Like eventually that, that does fade away. But that transition uh, was, was miserable um, because you you're getting such knowledge and you can't apply it to direct impact, which would be playing. You have to apply it to secondary impact, which is coaching and teaching someone to go do those things on the field. And I, I truly think that, you know, we hear all the time about NFL players and they're broke or they're divorced or they're on drugs, uh, they're depressed, you know, when their careers are over. That's fair. But college players, there's 10 times as many of them, probably more than that, if you look at every level of college football, that are just as depressed, that are just as, you know, in a you know, place of an identity crisis and we're broke. Like we didn't even have money to lose. We didn't have money, period. Um, and, I, and I think that's like a huge missing gap that's, that's talked about in college athletics or in, in the sport of football because it's hard and the transition is hard. And for me, I, I landed at SC. So you're like, well, that's a great place to go. But you're, no player is ready to be done with their career. And, and I think for me, it was, a, it was a really hard transition for the first probably six months. 
did that aspect of seeing the game of football in a different light than how you might have seen it playing it, just getting to be on the sideline, maybe getting to watch film in a different way, surrounding yourself around people that might see things a little bit differently. Did all that come easy to you to make it as a coach to go from that player to now I have to tell this player what to do? Or was that transition a little bit difficult as well? No, that was simple. I mean, I, I always been coaching, you know, my coach used to always say in college, Yo, you'll make a great coach. And I knew it. Um, I knew it at an early age. You know, I, I always had this vision of like John Wooden of football, you know, as a kid, I don't know why, you know, like we didn't even have cable, you know, like I didn't, I, the internet didn't exist. I wasn't watching John Wooden clips, but I'd read enough about him and been exposed to his philosophies. Um, and even Pete, I remember watching him when he's coaching with the Jets being like, that guy looks really cool. Never realizing that we'd end up working together. Um, so the coaching was easy. I mean, I coached, that's why they roomed me with Antonio Bryant my first two years and Larry my last two years. I, my job was to coach them to basically for Larry to take my job and for Antonio to keep his and, you know, be as talented as, as he was. He's still the most talented player I've ever, I've ever been around a wide receiver, just freaky. Um, but I, I say that saying coaching has always been easy. Like I think I've always had that spirit. Um, and then doing it in college, uh, what was fun for me was, was dropping into USC and you watch it from afar. And just like now in college football, right? We look at, you know, the big names this year, whether it's Trace McSorley or you know, I'm trying to think of some of the huge names, Jake Browning, right out here on the West coast, you know, like the big names when you're around them, they're, they're humans, you know? So me walking into Matt Liner and Reggie Bush and Dwayne Jarrett, um, was Lendale White was was actually it was pretty refreshing to be like yeah everybody's just kind of human just like me so so that part was was really easy because a lot of times stars just want to be treated like normal human beings you know and you see that all the time here in LA and you know both of us I think see that in in major collegiate athletics so does Pete ever bust you that they went back-to-back national titles and then you come around in 2005 and that takes care of the Three Pete, the four Pete, the five Pete. Does he ever get on you for that? <laughs> no, no, he never has. Um, thank God, that's good. But I, I remember the night of the national title. I remember walking out to the Rose Bowl, and you know, I don't know if you've been to the Rose Bowl, but it's it's different. I, I've been to, I've been to everything but the Sugar in terms of the major college bowl games, and it ain't close. You know, I, I coached in four Rose Bowls. I've broadcast. I want to say like six of them now, five or six of them. Um, so I'm around that game a ton and, uh, it's just magic, man. And I remember looking up and being like, Oh wow, this is, this is not Dunmore like on a trail or Pitt, West Virginia. I mean, this is, that was my first time seeing the Rose bowl. And I was just like, this is, this is power. And I've always taken the adage, even as a player, I did in my first bowl game at Iowa state, it was Iowa state Pitt the inside.com ball, I always have taken a moment to look into the crowd before the game to be like, this is cool. You know, like embrace this, appreciate this, you know, enjoy the joy of this. And I remember doing that there down on the field and being like, I'm never going to lose a game my whole career. I'm going to be John Wood. Like, this is going to be amazing, you know? And uh, of course we lose that game in epic fashion. And I sprint down as fast as I could to the locker room. Cause all I want to do is see what Pete was going to say. And, uh, what he said was beautiful. You know, he said, you know, 19 seconds will never define us. And we always said that for us to lose, somebody either had to play out of their mind or we had to turn it over four times. 
and Vince Young went out of his mind. And, uh, and I loved that, you know, and he stuck by every principle, um, you know, and he did the same thing when the Seahawks lost in the Super Bowl, you know, and, and that's why I'll always back Pete and, you know, I love him like a, as close to a dad as, as someone could get. Um, he's, he's awesome. And no, he doesn't bust me about that, but I, I wish more than anything we won that game because it would put him, it would have put him in a different stratosphere in the general public's perception, which means absolutely zero, but it's a real thing. You know, you look at politics, it's a real thing. You know, public perception matters um, to a certain degree in terms of just how you're received by the game or by a community. And if he won, if we won that night, uh, Pete, I think would be in a different conversation than he's in right now. You also would have been the first of your Lackawanna Trail football team to get a championship ring. You can't claim that fame now, thanks to Mr. John Glenn for doing it with the Seahawks <laughs> and Pete Carroll. So, a small world, as we mentioned, him getting to have that ring now with Pete, I guess it softens the blow a little bit, though he'll probably enjoy rubbing it in your face for several more <laughs> years now. But yeah, that's only well, on homecomings. It's, it's a great story, though. You know, I mean, John... John was my first friend in life. You know, think about that. Like, I remember being five years old, swinging on the swings in our barn in Dalton, Pennsylvania, talking about, like, who we were going to marry. You know, like, I can John has been my best friend since the literal beginning. And, you know, you know where we came from. The listeners may not, but it's a town of 2,500 people with, you know, no stoplights. And we still don't have soccer at our high school. It's a small community, uh, but full of big dreams. And then whenever I go and talk in that area, I always remind people of that. And to think about what John has done, um, and John has earned it. You know, John didn't, I had an easier path than John because I played at a huge school, major college football, and had this, you know, great walk on to scholarship story and, you know, made some plays in my career. John played at a small D2 school that nobody other than James Franklin is really known for recently in college athletics for coming from. So he had to fight his tail off and go to a D3 school and coach. And then he was out of coaching. And then he was working at like a gym. And then he's working at, uh, I think it was, it was Hertz, you know, or one of those, or Enterprise, you know, and he's just hustling. Then I, I remember the day that, you know, he got a call from Steve Sarkeesian. He said, all right, we'll give you one day. Come on up. And if you do well, maybe we'll keep you. And if you don't, we'll send you home. And I remember the drive from my apartment in Hermosa Beach to the airport. And John and I both have tears in our eyes. Because he fought so much in, in sports, you, you, you compete so hard to play well. Um, and then when it ends, you compete so hard to stay involved in it sometimes, and it's hard. You know, you're, you're living the fight. I've lived it. John lived it. And then to do two years with Sark and then jump over to the Hawks and make the climb that he's made, um, it's awesome. I mean, John is a star, and John's going to be a big-time defensive coordinator in the NFL, and he'll have his chance in 10 years at a head job. Because uh, that's just the nature of the league when that happens. To keep the six degrees of separation and the small world going, Pete eventually leaves for the NFL, as we know. Steve Sarkeesian eventually leaves USC and ends up in Washington. And you probably could have, if you wanted to, attempted to go with either of them to continue coaching in college, to maybe start coaching in the NFL but you decide to go into the broadcasting world and, and start dipping your toes in the waters of that. What made you decide to switch gears there and go into now what you're doing as a career? Yeah, well, no, I mean, I almost went with Sark. Um, it's probably, you know, I think in life, you, you've done this a couple of times, but 
we start to have difficult decisions, different phases, right? The first one's usually like college, you know, now some kids would say it's like what high school to go to, which is another podcast in and of itself. But uh, it's your college decision and then it's your first job and do you want to move? And then you, know, you just keep having them. Um, and when Sark offered me the quarterback job at UW, that was hard because so, he's still, you know, family to me. Um, I do anything for him and I have tons of love for him. And uh, he taught me the game. He taught me offensive football. Uh, Pete taught me coaching philosophy. Sark taught me the, the true components uh, of the game, of the quarterback position specifically. Um, and I was going to be the youngest position coach in a power five school in the country. I think at the time I was 26 going to UW and it's going to make more money than my parents had made combined in their careers uh, in a year. So everything said, take it. Other than I had this little thing inside me that just was loud. And it said, no, there's more in life. And I remember talking to Pete and Pat rule, who's an O-line coach in Seattle and other guys and talking about their careers and, you know, man, they were, they were amazing careers, but I kept thinking every year is a different story, a different team, but you, your life's pretty much been consistent in terms of what to expect your entire 30, 35 year career. And I didn't want that. And that was the worst thing I could have. You know, I, did, I didn't think down the road, like maybe I'll be Lincoln Riley or Tom Herman or, you know, I didn't, I didn't, or Steve or Lane. Like I never thought that way. I was in such the immediate and I was like, I got to see the globe. And if I start now, I'll never get off this coaching train. And I don't really want that as the vision for my life. And I don't think I could articulate it that well then, but that's what I was feeling. Um, but I still love the game and I, I knew I couldn't get away from the game. So I try to create and curate a life of, you know, when I'm in football for eight months of the year, like nobody's in it deeper than I am. But those other four months, I don't really care about third down cutups. And I don't really want to spend the whole time, you know, evaluating how to attack a bear front. You know, like I just, it, it didn't light me up as much as let me go to Cambodia with nothing but a bag and a ball. Let me go to Laos. You know, let me go to San Sebastian and surf the greatest longboard wave in the world. You know, let me get lost in Cuba. Let me climb, uh, you know, throughout Iceland with ice picks in, on these gnarly glaciers. Like, let me get lost in New Zealand in a van. I mean, those are the things that were lighting me up. Um, and I just had that, that desire to explore. And I can even remember coaches when I was, you know, you, you debate and you talk to your community. Hey, what should I do? Should I take it? Should I not? And I talked to a guy named Johnny Morton, who was the Jets OC last year. And he said, uh, he goes, yo, listen to your tone. When you talk about coaching um, and when you talk about traveling, it's just different. You got to go travel. And, uh, and I made the decision to go. And, of course, as life would have it, a year later, Pete gets the Seahawks job. Um, and I went up for an interview, and I was going to be the assistant O-line coach. Um, because the OC at the time, Jeremy Bates, who's now with the Jets, He's like that. He did that with the Broncos and he said it was the best thing that ever happened in his career because it gave him a great foundation of offensive football. And I, and I loved that idea. I was like, man, I'm going to go be like, I'm, I'm going to do some work for a year and then I'm going to have quarterbacks, receivers and O-line kind of handled to a degree. Like I'm going to be launching out of here. And I remember walking around the facility and, and I said to myself, okay, the beautiful thing about football when you play is the locker room and the hundred guys. The fun thing about coaching is the 20 guys in the staff room. Um, but that's your world. And in the NFL, there's no college campus. There's no, you know, student advisory committee, like none of that stuff. Like it's just ball. And 
And I realized that I didn't want that. And, uh, you know, decided not to, not to, you know, kind of continue to pursue that. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to broadcast. And, you know, I had to fight and I'm still fighting my ass off to maintain relevancy in the craft. Uh, but I don't think I'd have it on, have it any other way. Can you give the listeners the LinkedIn page or resume bullet points of the first start in your broadcasting career to now ending up with the Pac-12 network and some of the other projects that you're working on as best as you can? Because, again, that could be another podcast in itself, just being able to name all the things that you've been able to do. Well, I think, you know, the, the funnest part for me was the start. You know, I, I was recruiting at SC, right, and Matt Barkley was the big recruit. And I had, as a player, met a bunch of producers and talent at ESPN because they called our games that carried over to USC and the relationships kept developing. And a producer, uh, a guy named Michael Fountain, who's become a dear friend and a mentor in my life, uh, went to Pitt. He'd always been in my corner. And I'd always kind of give him stories, like the Jake Olson story. I remember calling him and being like, hey, man, you should tell, you should tell this story. This is awesome. And, uh, you know, whatever, they kind of happened throughout the year. Bill Withers speaking to USC. I mean, there's a bunch of stories that kind of went viral um, because ESPN had the platform that they, that they had. Anyway, he called me and he said, tell me about Matt Barkley. Uh, you know, we're trying to learn about this guy. And I said, I'll tell you all about him. Just put me on air. And he goes, excuse me? And I said, yeah, tell me all about him. I'll, I'll give you everything, but put me on TV. Like, I don't have a job. I, I, I kind of got to figure this thing out. And he goes, yo, we're ESPN. And I said, yeah, I know. I don't care. <laughs> and uh, he gave me one shot. And uh, one sh- led to two, led to three, led to two years of working on College Football Live. Um, simultaneously, Fox Sports was looking for an analyst uh, for their like low-level Big 12 package. And uh, I walked into the office of a guy named Max Casanova, which is the greatest name and business executive in sports that I've ever heard of. And... Uh, he said, tell me why I should hire you. And I said, well, you can hire the older coach or the former player, but I'm a, you're never going to find somebody who's five years uh, removed from playing and five months removed from coaching the greatest program at the time in recent history. And he goes, okay, I'll take a flyer on you. So I started calling games for Fox um, and did that for a couple of years. I got the elite 11 job or I've been hosting that show. Now this is the 10th year I've done that. And when the Pac-12 network started, I, I was all over it. I begged and clawed and fought to get a, a seat at that table and, and thankfully got it. And I went from sideline reporter to, you know, guy in the booth to our analyst, uh, you know, in, in a matter of, you know, a, a nice little quick period of time. And it's now it's my dream job. You know, I get to produce, I get to be part of storytelling. I get to call games. I get to host shows. Uh, the Pac-12 Networks is, is the greatest gift that's ever been given to me as a professional and one that uh, I'm so super jacked and honored and bullish about and, and can't wait to, to get on set week one um, and, and start calling some games. Well, before I get you out of here, we'll have to hit on family and we'll have to hit on traveling to cornerstones of what you do in your day-to-day life. I'm curious to know through what your journey has been up to this point. And this could go in a, several different directions, which is why I think it's a good question to ask you. What would you say the lowest point has been throughout all of this, where you had to really get yourself from the ground up and get through it, whether that's from football, whether that's from media, whether that's from coaching? Is there a time you can look back on where you were at your lowest point and had to fight through that to get to where you are now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's a bunch of them, you know. I mean, think about being an athlete. You know, I can remember, you know, having dark days when you, you you think you've done enough. They're on a scholarship that the coach keeps saying you haven't. You know, those are hard. But looking back, like, it wasn't that hard. You know, you look at the coaching world and agonizing over decisions and starting new careers. And at the time, it's hard. Looking back, like, it's not that hard. Um, I think for me, the, the hardest part has probably been um, letting go of what an athletic mind has proven to allow you to achieve. So an athletic mind would say, all right, if I wake up at 5 a.m. every day in Dalton, Pennsylvania, and I spend an hour working on the strength shoes, jumping over garbage cans in the driveway when everybody else is asleep, and I catch a 1,000 balls every day after practice, if I am the first and last guy to leave, if I study the craft, it's going to allow me to perform well. That's the truth. You know, that, that's going to work in collegiate athletics. Like, does it mean you're going to get a scholarship? Does it mean that you're going to go to the NFL? No, but you're going to get better at your craft. And you're going to play better in entertainment. It's the, op- it's, it's almost the opposite, right? So I laid out a plan for myself in the entertainment community of like, this will lead to this will lead to this and boom, I'll be at my place. I'll be calling the national championship game. I'll be on good morning America or whatever, like those early thoughts are. And what you quickly realize, uh, you know, in a tough way in entertainment is that, it's not about how hard you work in terms of where you land. You know, you got to do the work because you love the work, which is a given, um, at least in my craft. I love studying and I love the craft and I love the stories and I love the humanity of sports. But you can't control, you know, an executive that's going to give you a nod and say, OK, you're going to be, you know, our guy. Or you're going to be the face of X. Um, you, you just can't. So you got to just find the purity in the craft. And I think for me, uh, losing, letting go of that control that you desperately want for somebody who's only worked for everything. Like I don't come from nothing, but I, I definitely didn't come from like a silver spoon and I don't have a famous parent or somebody in the entertainment industry. Like I, I believe that I've earned everything that I've, that I've been able to, you know, get lucky on. And, and I think that's a hard lesson for people of like, well, you mean that, if I work my ass off, it doesn't always just happen, you know, like, no, it doesn't. Like you've got to be creative. You got to be, you know, you got to have a podcast like you're doing right now, right? You got to, you got to utilize your mind and be really malleable there. And that for me was probably, you know, when the breaks didn't happen, um, when I thought they would happen, it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like every, the formula that got me here isn't working. Because it doesn't work that way in entertainment. You know, I got, I've missed on jobs because they're like, eh, we wanted somebody with longer hair. Or we wanted somebody who fits a different type of vibe or a different brand. And I was perfect for the job. Versus that would never happen at wide receiver if I caught the pass, I ran the right route, and I blocked the proper guy. You play, you know. So I, th- I think that transition for athletically minded individuals is one that probably doesn't get talked about. That It's just difficult. Through your storytelling and some of the documentaries you've made, two of the main subjects are your parents. And you've been able to tell their stories in different ways. And people that are listening might already be familiar with Life in the Walk, which you did with your father. People may know of uh, some of the different tales that you told of your mother and what she had to go through in her childhood. And, and they have 
two very unique and, and interesting mindsets and stories. And I was fortunate enough to talk to both of them when working on a story when you came to visit Northeastern Pennsylvania. Two things that stick out to me is you were all state and a high school football player. And your mother says, well, that's nice on winning all state, but there's 49 more states. So keep going. <laughs> You got a little bit more work to do. And obviously one of the quotes that you use as well is knowledge is no burden to carry, something that your father has has said and something that you continue to carry with you. How much did that relationship with your family help mold you, help keep you grounded, help you grow into what you are today and, and continue to strengthen that relationship with them? Uh, I think it was great. You know, I mean, I had a coach once. I think he's coaching somewhere in the NFL now. Uh, who recruited me in college. His name is Brian Angelico. He was most recently, I think, with the Packers. I'm not sure if he's still there. And he said, uh, Yoke, if you keep coming back to this town, the stories are going to be the same, but they're just going to get better. And and that hit me at 16, you know, in recruiting. Um, and I think I can mirror that with, you know, when I came home and said, hey, mom, I was just named player of the state in Pennsylvania. And she's like, congratulations, there's 49 other states. You know, one might think that's callous, uh, but coming from a refugee mom who grew up and look at the climate we're in right now, clearly there's major issues. Um, coming from a refugee parent who had nothing, who couldn't speak the language, had nothing but the clothes on her back when she got off a boat and was told where she was going to live. And the piece of paper said Scranton Pa, and they didn't know what that meant. They thought that was one word, but it was Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, and got on a train and started a life. Um, that's difficult, you know, studying for your earth science exam or playing, you know, high school football at a high level, that ain't hard, you know? And I think in a roundabout way, that's pretty much what she was saying of, hey, it's a big world out there. Let's not sit on how great we are in our little community. And that community may be one of 50 states. That community now for me might be the whole West Coast in college football broadcasting for the Pac-12. And I would argue I'd put my college football work up against anybody in the country. Uh, but it's not about, you know, competing against some giant landscape like that. It's about, you know, understanding there's a big world and there's a lot of stories. And make sure you have the compassion and humanity and humility to recognize, receive, and celebrate those. And I think from an early age, uh, our parents instilled that. You know, I, I learned my dad was an all-state athlete from the barber. Think about that. Like, for an athletic son... Most dads probably think like we're going to put our trophy on a mantle and maybe we'll tell our kid how sweet we are. Um, I learned from the barber when I was 14. I'll never forget it. You know, that's why my house doesn't have things on the wall of my career and fit. Not because I'm not proud of them, but my family doesn't need me to parade how great I was um, or how great I thought I was. <laughs> um, they need to develop their own path in their own life. And, and I that 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 was really loud to me. Um, and I think what it's done is it's given me a, a really great respect for the craft um, versus thinking that I am the craft. And I've always felt that coaches, when you think you're bigger than the game, um, and it's happened before, uh, I think that happened to Charlie Weiss at Notre Dame. You think you're smarter than the game, or at least perceptually. I mean, I've never met Charlie, but, you know, that's, you know, was a perception from his first press conference, right? Um, and, and there's countless others that are like that the game gets you. The game always wins, right? Like whether you're Kobe Bryant and the game tells you when it's done with you or it can happen to Tom Brady. It happens to Jerry Rice. It happens to the great ones. You know, it tells you when it's done. Um, 
And if you think you're better than the game or smarter than the game, then you're going to get slapped around. And I've always felt that the number one thing I need to do is respect the game, you know, and before every broadcast I ever have, I always say the same thing, which is celebrate the game and coach the viewer. And that's my job versus sound sweet, rock a dope suit and put a selfie up all things that are very fair nothing wrong with any of them. But the craft is to celebrate the 200 stories on a football field every Saturday and to coach my mom who doesn't know what cover two is during the broadcast. And I think that all stems from them saying, Hey, there's 40 in other States um, or them not promoting, you know, what they did throughout their individual careers. We'll have to wait for a part two to get more into life in a walk and talk about you deciding to tell that story and, and go out with your dad for that. Talk about life without limits, your podcast, talk about some of the other documentaries you made. And of course, talk about traveling to more than 30 or so countries, I guess to close, you took one of your trips this past summer or close to the summer of just traveling somewhere and basically without any plan and, and just seeing where the wind takes you, no pun intended. Are you looking to the future of next summer coming up? Are, are swirlings in your head already going on of where you might be going for your next trip? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my whole thing, I just did a podcast that'll come out in a couple of weeks with this guy named Chris Burkhardt. Um, Chris is, you know, world-renowned photographer, um, you know, 3 million Instagram followers and all that stuff. And Chris is awesome. And our combo is just off the chain. I mean, it's really cool. Uh, but we talk about um, wanting to feel small sometimes. And for me, I think I have two phases of travel. One is right after the season where I want to go where nobody really is. Right? The last couple of years, that's been Cuba, uh, New Zealand, um, this past year, Iceland two years ago. Like really go to remote places. You know, I've done like, you know, uh, uh, Laos before, like just some really remote, you know, middle, middle of Africa, middle of nowhere type of spots. Um, and then the summer comes around and I want to find some waves, you know, so there's always kind of that fun little balance for me. This, this past summer I did San Sebastian, Spain, and instead of running from European town to European city, I just was in one place the whole time. And I just surfed my face off and had a blast. And, uh, you know, my family came over and friends came over and loved ones came over. And my girlfriend came over. I mean, it was just perfect. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely thinking about, you know, where the next spots are and the world's so big. I've got this big map in my apartment where I'm always kind of looking at, hey, where do I got to go check off here? Where do I want to go? So there's a lot of fun spots on the list uh, and I'll definitely take any recommendations. So please, for all your listeners, if you got spots you'd recommend that make you feel small and part of something that's way bigger than yourself and you know, maybe some ways, spots that have some fun waves. I'm all ears. Yogi, I always enjoy hearing your stories, and I appreciate you taking some time to tell some of them on the show and give some of the listeners what you've been able to do in your career and some of the behind the scenes to it. As I mentioned, still plenty of more to talk about, still plenty of more to get into with your life, but we'll have to put that as a part two because now you got to get back on the grind for another season of Pac-12 football, which will be here before you know it. But I appreciate your time getting to talk to me before that happens and continued success with everything you do. You look forward to the coverage you'll be able to provide us this upcoming football season. Yeah, man. Hey, and congrats to you. I mean, you know, I know that you're interviewing me, but people should know your story. I mean, you, you've competed to create a pretty radical life, man. So congratulations. Well, you've co-written a book with Pete Carroll, so maybe we can team up down the road. There we go. I can get that going. <laughs> let's, let's do it. All right, man. Thanks, bro. 
Thanks again to Yogi for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Solo, a Star Wars story, which Rotten Tomatoes describes... Board the Millennium Falcon and journey to a galaxy far, far away in Solo, a Star Wars story. An all-new adventure with the most beloved scoundrel in the galaxy. Through a series of daring escapades deep within a dark and dangerous criminal underworld, Han Solo meets his mighty future co-pilot Chewbacca and encounters the notorious gambler, Lando, in a journey that will set the course of one of the Star Wars saga's most unlikely heroes. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is 5 Minutes in the Film Room. The Star Wars franchise is in a bit of a weird spot right now. Its spin-off movie Solo, A Star Wars Story, is failing at the box office. It's not as if Disney has to worry as the franchise has already brought in buckets of money, but the drop-off is a head-scratcher. Among the Disney releases, The Force Awakens opened to $247 million in 2015, a record at the time that was surpassed in April by Avengers Infinity War's monster $258 million opening. Rogue One opened to $155 million, and The Last Jedi brought in $220 million in its opening weekend. Five months after The Last Jedi's December release, Solo managed just an $84 million opening. How did that happen? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Solo was the next film after the most divisive movie in the Star Wars franchise, The Last Jedi, and again, it came out five months later. There was no time to breathe in between films. I don't think people have fully digested The Last Jedi, especially the hardcore fans who didn't appreciate Ryan Johnson's direction. Solo's shaky production didn't help matters either, as directors Phil Lord and Chris Miller were removed from the project late in the game. The very capable Ron Howard was brought in to put the pieces together. Perhaps as a result, the first trailer dropped during the Super Bowl, just three months before the movie's release. So the marketing was very limited. It was also released in May instead of Star Wars' usual spot around Christmas, leaving it vulnerable to some of the other summer powerhouses. Avengers Infinity War is a $2 billion movie that opened about a month before Solo. Another superhero juggernaut and one of the most successful R-rated movies, Deadpool 2, opened a week before Solo. I suppose we should have seen this coming. The signs were there, but who would think one of the most popular franchises of all time would lose its footing? The bigger problem for Solo is that it didn't do much to move the needle and put people in the seats after its release. Let's go to the tape. Alden Ehrenreich did a nice job in the portrayal of the iconic and beloved character Han Solo. The movie focuses on Han at ages 19 and 22, and it decides to give him a more optimistic and hopeful outlook on life. I think this works because his desire to eventually join the Rebellion has to stem from somewhere. 
I really enjoy Aaron Reich's delivery and his look and swagger are pretty on point. You're never going to get a performance on the level of Harrison Ford from anybody, but Aaron Reich takes the character in a believable direction at that age. I love all the actors in the movie. Amelia Clark's presence alone just works. From her experience as a queen in Game of Thrones, she commands the screen. The supremely talented Donald Glover can do anything he wants. In Solo, he portrays Lando Calrissian, having to follow up the charm and swagger of a Billy D. Williams. To no surprise, the role fits him like a glove, as he is one of the most well-rounded talents. Woody Harrelson is Woody Harrelson, and that's a good thing, because I love him as an actor. Paul Bettany works as the villain. He's kind of terrifying, because you never know if he's going to hug you or kill you. That sort of charm takes talent to nail. The plot is a bit shaky. There are elements I like about it, while others don't fit into the movie. I enjoy the main simplistic plot. Han escapes his life of essentially slavery as he steals to survive, but his friend Kira, played by Clark, is caught. So Han's mission is to get back and save her. In order to try to save her and himself, he needs to do what he did in the life he escaped. Steal. That plot works, as there are some solid action sequences and good interactions among characters. Where the story goes off course is when it tries to fill in every gap the original trilogy set up. Some of it was really cool, but some of it I didn't need and felt tacked on anyway. The other thing that didn't work, I'm sorry to say, was Lando's robot L3. Usually I'm a big fan of the robots in the series, but L3 was trying to make a political statement that just didn't fit into the movie. It was a subplot that takes you out of the film. She gets into the fact that droids have rights too and starts a rebellion mid-movie during a pivotal point for the crew as they are making an escape with items that are going to save their lives. They also imply that Lando would or already has had sex with L3, which just doesn't fit into a Han Solo origin film. I'm all for making a political statement through the art of filmmaking, but it has to fit. You can't throw it into the middle of a movie just because. It loses its luster even though it is important. Bottom line, Solo, A Star Wars Story is a good movie. It's a fun film that makes a lot of cool choices with a good cast. However, it tries to get too cute and fill in all the gaps of Han Solo's past while adding an out-of-place subplot. When the movie focuses on the main plot, it works great. The action sequences flow well and are expertly shot, but too much bogs the movie down to place it any higher than a middle-of-the-road Star Wars flick for many. I'll compare Solo, A Star Wars Story to Paul George. George is a very good basketball player. In fact, an all-star. I would love to have him in L.A., but he's not going to move the needle for you like a LeBron James, Kevin Durant, James Harden, or Steph Curry. He needs to be a supporting player to win a championship on a team with one, maybe two players who are better than him. He can't be the face of the franchise. Solo is much of the same. Without the Star Wars name attached to it, Solo is just a good space western that you could disregard after watching it once. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge... 
keeping you connected with all things sports.